hey everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Mark Miller. Who's that? So glad you asked. Mark Miller is a business leader, best-selling author, and communicator. He started his Chick-fil-A career working as an hourly team member in 1977. And today, he leads in the company as vice president of high-performance leadership. He began writing almost 20 years ago and just released a new book, Smart Leadership, his 10th book. He's got more than a million books in print in more than 25 languages. He's got a huge global impact. And we actually know each other. We just recently did an event together. I got to see him backstage. It was super fun. So you're going to love this conversation. I love what he talks about when he talks about choices. All the choices you and I have to make every day. There's way more than you think. But first, a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Today's sponsor is me. I've been really surprised at how many people who listen to this podcast have reached out to me about having me speak at their events. I love that. And Here's why. Over the last 13 years, I've had the honor to help hundreds of companies like Nissan, Walmart, Microsoft, and Comedy Central at events around the world. And during that time, I've developed three big goals for your event. Number one, I want to slingshot your audience into the best year they've ever had. Whether I'm opening, closing, or somewhere in the middle of the event, I want to launch everyone out of that room with actionable, memorable things that they can apply to their work and lives immediately. Number two, my second goal, I want the sound team engaged and laughing. The sound team has heard it all. They have. And if I can make them laugh and learn along the way, the audience is going to absolutely love the keynote. And number three, my third goal, I want you to get text messages during the keynote. My favorite sentence to hear from you after I speak is, John, my phone was blowing up during your keynote. I'm there to make you look like a rock star, not me. If your boss text you during my speech and compliments you on how well the event is going, then I know I've done my job. Whether it's virtual or live, 10,000 people in an arena or 15 sales team members on WebEx or Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, I'd love to help you with your next event. Fill out the quick form at acuff.me slash speaking to check my availability. That's acuff, A-C-U-F-F dot M-E slash speaking. All right, let's jump into my interview with Mark Miller. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. I saw you about a month ago in Nashville. I spoke at your event, and in a way, um, you could say I opened up for Garth Brooks. Exactly. Yeah, thank you for thank you for verifying that. I think we might have been separated by 24 hours, but that still counts as far as I'm concerned and as far as Twitter is concerned. So. It was fun to see you. I'm thrilled that you are uh, here to have a conversation with me about your new book. Thanks for coming, man. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And we were so thankful to have you in Nashville. Our people loved you. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. It was a blast. I told you before we started recording that I knew you guys were going to have to chase me off stage because I love your people. I love what you guys do. So it was really fun for me. I want to jump right into your new book. And I actually have two copies of it. I have the copy you guys sent me. And I also have the audio, um, which is really fun too, because it kind of, it's always weird when you meet the person who's recorded the audio, because you're like, oh, I know that guy a little bit. But your book is all about choices. 
particularly four choices that leaders have to make. What surprised me is that research shows, and you mentioned this, that on average, people make 35,000 different choices a day. I'm curious, have you created any systems in your own life to help you reduce that number of choices? Like I have a packing list when I travel for business travel because I got tired of buying belts at every TJ Maxx in the country. So for you, what are some things where you've simplified your life to go, I can't do 35,000, I need some systems? Okay, so the 35,000 number is the best estimate that psychologists can give us for choices we make in a day where they are remotely conscious is some of the language. So most of us are certainly not aware of those choices. But the book is an attempt to hack that whole process. We call them smart choices. And these are choices that require a little more time, a little more energy, a little more focus, but they yield a disproportionate return. We can't get caught up in 35,000 remotely conscious choices Mm -hmm. in a day. Let's be deliberate and let's be intentional on choices that really matter. You do a kind of high-level view of the different types of choices we have to face. And the one that got me was costly choices, choices that we're over-investing in that aren't worth it. And I I learned a lesson about that from a boss at Home Depot. Um, I was writing advertising. I was writing two pieces. One was a, a brochure like that was like a you know a hundred page brochure for the new direction of our company. The other one was a postcard for a rug sale. And I was putting the same amount of creativity and effort into both projects. And she lovingly pulled me aside and was like, "Hey, no offense, no one's going to care about this postcard the minute it goes out the door. The headline is rugs on sale this Memorial Day. Like, stop." Shakespearean this headline. The other project needs your full creativity. How do you help people see the difference between what's a costly, you know, choice, something that doesn't need all their energy all their time, and what's a, you know, smart choice, a choice that does need a little bit of that extra time, a little bit of that extra effort, a little bit of that extra um, potential? Well, I think your example is is a great one. One of the other choices that smart leaders make is they choose to confront reality. Mm-hmm. And that is often difficult to do by ourselves. And so what your leader did for you was help you confront reality. And so I encourage leaders to always be in search of fresh eyes, people who you can bring around you to help you see things that you may not be able to see, or in some cases, to see things you're not willing to see. How do you curate those kind of relationships? Because I think there's a temptation to say, hey, I need some feedback. The minute the person (laughs) gives it to him, you're like, that's dumb. I don't know why I asked you anyway. And you shut down that relationship because we all say we want that. We all say like, we want people who tell us the truth. But then oftentimes when they start to, we get really grumpy. How do you avoid that? Well, it it really goes back to the motivation for all these choices. And you you move past that. But let me say a word Uh, When we started this work, it was really to help leaders be more effective. And what we discovered is a huge number of leaders, I would say the vast majority, are attempting to swim in quicksand. Mm -hmm. And if, if you're comfortable swimming in quicksand, you don't need to listen to anybody. You don't need to confront reality at all. So I think there is a readiness that leaders need to possess if they're really going to become a smart leader. Because 
if you really don't want to confront reality, then you're never going to do the things necessary to confront reality, which is when somebody gives you that hard truth, regardless of your initial reflex or instinctive response, that you control that and you say, tell me more, tell me more. If you're not motivated to actually be a smart leader, you're not going to do any of the things that are necessary to, to make that a reality. You mentioned the metaphor you use in the book, quicksand. How do leaders come to that ready spot? Like, how is it they see a level that they can't reach and they're tired of not reaching it? Is it that the pain gets, the temporary pain gets so non-temporary that they go, I got to do something? Is it that somebody comes alongside and says, we see something you don't see in yourself? How do you get ready? Because you can't force somebody to be ready. You're right. The worst person, I always joke like, the best time to give somebody advice is when they say to you, will you give me advice? The other times are squirrely and dangerous. Like maybe I'm listening to this and I feel stuck, like quicksand I relate to. What does it take to become ready to, to figure out, okay, I am ready for this feedback? Well, I think it's, it's all the things you mentioned. That's, that's a great place to start. And different leaders are going to start in a different place. But I think for men and women who, who desire to have more impact, they desire to have more influence. I think that comes from deep inside. It's not the men and women that are just going through the motions and doing a job. Sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a pain point. Sometimes it's an opportunity cost. Sometimes it's a complacency. Sometimes it's a dissatisfaction with your reality that'll make you want to change it. Sometimes it's just leaders run out of energy. And they just say, I can't do this anymore. I mean, there's been a lot in the press about the great resignation. And uh, uh, your listeners have, have probably heard much of that. It's been interesting. Many of the articles that I've read try to put a positive spin on it. And I'm not saying there isn't a positive side. And you've seen the stories that say men and women have, have uh, reflected on their own uh, mortality and their own contributions, and they want to pursue something more noble. Well, I think that's true for some people. I think some people are caught up in the great resignation because they're exhausted. They're exhausted. The work they're doing is killing them. Well, you've got some choices to make when you get to that point. Do you resign or do you choose to get out of the quicksand? You've said it. You, you can't force anyone to readiness. But what I've been told, even though the book's not been out long, I've uh, interacted with a number of leaders who said, I didn't know there was a way out. I, uh, I thought it was hopeless mm -hmm. because, you know, if, if, if you read about people who've been in quicksand, I've not been in it personally. I'm not sure about you. Uh, I don't want to. Days young, days young. I'm going outside later today. We'll see. I have read personal accounts of people. And one of the words that comes up again and again is hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Now, that's often after a season of flailing. And what you learn when you flail in quicksand is it doesn't help. It hurts. You just go deeper, faster. You go deeper. And so, and then there's this resignation often followed by hopelessness. So for the person that maybe is feeling that right now, and they're at the start of this and they're going, okay, you know what? I'm not, I think you're right. I think there's a percent of people who use this time to kind of reassess. But I think there's a lot of people and, and I run into them all the time. I mean, I saw a stat that said scientists studied the, the average week for Americans and the saddest hour of the week was Sunday at noon because it's the first time they can feel Monday coming. 
Like life is, I, people always say life is short. No, life is very long to not enjoy what you do for a living. Like it's very long. So if I feel stuck and I'm going, okay, Mark, what's the first step? Like if you said, okay, here's the choice I want you to start with, where would I start? I think you confront reality. And I think you've got to prioritize because there's so many areas that you could confront reality. You could look at your leadership. You could look at your team. You could look at your health. You could look at your finances. You could look at your fitness or your relationships. And ultimately, it's really good for us to be grounded in truth in all of those areas. Mm -hmm. Only when we're grounded in truth can we lead from a position of strength. You don't need to try to swallow the whole elephant. I would encourage leaders to probe an area where you have concern or perhaps a raging fire, right? I mean, but but maybe you know there's a problem or you just smell smoke is to start there. And then I'll go back to the whole idea of sometimes it's hard to do this by yourself. You need some fresh eyes. You can get a coach. You can get a mentor. You've got the resources. You can hire a consultant. You can have a personal board of directors. Uh, there's a long list. I mean, I'm in a group that's been studying leadership now for 23 years. We meet twice a month. And part of what that group does, not only does it help me learn about this mysterious thing called leadership, but that group provides community, they provide accountability, they provide encouragement, and they provide fresh eyes. So if you can't do any of those other things, just huddle with three or four other people and say, hey, let's do life together. Break down that group a little bit. Like, how did it start? What happens in it? Is it like a hot seat thing? You come in, you're like, hey, I've got this big podcast. I'm really nervous about John Acuff, super big. I don't I don't want to blow it. Like, what does that look like? Tell us the structure, because I'm in a group like that that meets every Monday, um, and I've been in it for two years. But I think there's a lot of people that go, well, how would I even, how would I even start that? I want that. How do I start that? Okay. Again, I would encourage you to follow your heart, but let me give you some best practices. Or maybe not even best practices, things that have worked for our group over the years. First, we got a small group of, of men, in this case, they're all guys, mm-hmm. who said, we want to grow our leadership so that we can grow our influence. We want to grow our impact. So I think you need to, to find some like-minded people with a common goal or objective, even if it's broad and directional. How many people were, are in it? They're 10. 10, okay. 10 guys. And we decided since our topic was leadership, we've done a lot of stuff, as you can imagine, over 23 years, but typically it's a book study. Mm -hmm. And we'll do 50, 75 pages every two weeks. And there'll be study questions that go out in advance, five to 10 questions. And everybody does their own work. We come together. Uh, When we meet, pre COVID, we met in somebody's home. So we rotated, Mm -hmm. you know, and we'd have dinner. Uh, a time of fellowship. Uh, most of the guys, I guess all the guys now, it's a faith-based community. So mm-hmm. we might share prayer requests. And then we spend that last hour studying whatever the assignment was for that night. And, you know, we move through, we move through a lot of content over the years. We get to the fall. We put together the first draft of our development plan for the next year. We bring in first drafts. We get feedback from each other on that. Development plan for the group or for your individual life? Our individual. We bring ah, it on okay. yeah. and say, here's what I'm working on. And so back to fresh eyes, somebody can say, excuse me, how did you do on last year's plan? Well, one, hopefully we've talked about that along the way. Yeah. But, but do you need to put this back on your plan? Have you learned all you need to learn here? Or you might say, hey, there's something that's conspicuous in its absence. Let's talk yeah. about why and X, Y, Z on your plan. Oh, 
and then you create your plans. And again, that's just part of the, the reason I mentioned that is when you said, what's it look like? It looks different January through September. Those last couple months, we're usually working on development plans because it will take two guys each night that'll share a draft typically. Again, we've been doing this for a long, long time. And then we'll circle back to share the final drafts of our development plans. That's so good. And there's no way I can't ask some follow-up questions about a personal development plan. Because I think you just, for some people, you just said like, we do wizard magic and then it we throw it in the air and there's hummingbirds. Like it just, it's very foreign. Like I don't want to skate past that as if everybody has that. Tell us a little about, okay, what's a, what's your personal development plan? And, and part of the reason I was really looking forward to this, this conversation is, You've invested so much of your life, so much of your time into leadership expertise, into personal leadership, into team leadership. So I knew it was going to be a rich conversation. Tell us a little about when you say we develop a personal development plan, what does that look like? Okay. It's different for every person. Okay. And I've never been a fan of a template. I tend to think more about some principles. Okay. The first principle is one of focus. Because I've not only have I created a lot of plans, I've looked at a lot of plans. I mean, 25 years ago or so, we required our field staff here to have a personal development plan several years before we required them to even have a business plan. So that was the first step. It was always about yeah. you got to grow yourself before you can serve others. So one of the, the principles is, is focus because I've looked at a lot of plans. That's where I was headed. And a lot of people who lose traction and lose energy and lose focus and excitement, it's because they're trying to do too many things. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, in my experience, it's better to pick a topic or two that you want to kind of go deep on and learn about over the coming, we use a year. Some people do six months. I know people that do longer plans. And that you've then got to decide the level of detail that will serve you. Do you need something that's very detailed and very specific? And I'm going to go to the gym on Mondays from four to six, or somebody else says I'm going to work out three times a week, or somebody else says I'm going to hit a target weight. What's going to help you move towards your goal? And then what are your success metrics? How will you know if you've actually made progress? What are your finish lines? Yeah. Again, different people's plan looks differently. And by the way, some people love a, a more um, fully orbed plan. Because some would say, well, it's fine to have a leadership development plan, but what about my faith and my fitness and my family and my finances? Say, include anything you want. Yeah. And so some people will say, I'm going to increase my um, contributions to my 401k by 5% next year. And somebody else is going to say, I'm going to do a date night, two nights a month with my daughter. Or mm -hmm. They're all unique and they're all different. I think the value for the group is one is the accountability that there's an expectation that you're going to grow and you're yeah. going to develop. And then secondly, we can provide fresh eyes and say, tell me about this. And is this specific enough? Or how will you know if you've been successful in this arena? When somebody brings theirs and it's too much, one of the reasons I loved Confront Reality, the second I heard it in your book, I was like, oh, I love that. I often say most goals are optimistic lies. They're things where we hope to do, but they're disconnected to our calendars, to our time, to our, you know, somebody will say, I want to write a book. And I'll say, well, how much time in the week do you have to devote to that? They have no idea. And it ends up being like an hour. And I go, well, if it takes 500 hours in like 10 years, you'll be able to have that. So something has to change. 
when somebody in your team, whether it's the team you work with, you know, it could be Chick-fil-A, it could be your personal development group goes, hey, here's my 72 goals or here's the 10,000 things I'm going to do this year. How do you help them see, you know what, I, I think we need to confront reality together. That's not realistic. Because a lot of modern motivational kind of information is like, dream big, go crazy, have an insane goal, you got to reach for the moon, whatever. How do you temper that? Well, I think, again, it goes back to the individual. Um, but as far as a principle is concerned, I believe that 60% of a crazy aggressive plan is better than 100% of a gimme. Ah, that's good. That's good. Like, I'm going to do these two things next year. It's like, well, you could do those two things Thursday. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Like, what is this about? Uh, so uh, I am a fan of stretch goals. Yeah. So again, some people are, some people aren't. How much is too much? How much is crazy? But but if I really do believe somebody is like not being honest, they're not confronting their own reality, I'll ask questions like you just talked about. How much time do you think this is going to take? When do you think you're going to do this? What has worked for you in the past? Let's look back at something where you have consciously and purposely pursued growth. Tell me about that. How did that work? What happened? What did you do? How much time and energy did you invest? What did it cost? What did it cost you to do that? And and what did you think when it was over, right? What, yeah. was, was, what was the ROI on that investment? But at the end of the day, if somebody wants a crazy aggressive plan, then make it to have a crazy aggressive plan. Yeah. Because in our case, if when the process and system is working right, we're going to talk about that later. Yeah. And then the first question is, how'd you do? What'd you learn? What are you going to do differently? Yeah. I mean, we often start our planning process with a question, what worked exceptionally well in the last 12 months that you want to consider replicating going forward? Like, What are you bringing forward? Referencing the process, right? Are the people in the group of similar age, career? Like, Because I've, I've seen some people say, the dynamics of a group really matter. So are they all same life stage? Like you all, you've all got grandkids at this point. You've all been at work for 25 years. You all work in, you know, big brands like a Chick-fil-A or is it somebody's an entrepreneur? It's a very diverse group. I'm the old guy. Okay. But, but the youngest guy is probably 10 years older, eight years older. So it's an aging group. We've been together 23 years. Yeah. So it's an aging group for sure. But you've got a nonprofit leader. You've got a couple guys that have changed careers during our time. You've got um, another former school headmaster who's now a teacher. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty eclectic group. Like, do you celebrate the big accomplishments? And the reason I ask is, I've seen times where leaders almost feel bad to share something that went well. Like they have an easier time. It feels reversed, but they, they feel like they're bragging or they don't want to be. And there's no spot for them to do that. So they never get to do it. And they're high performance. So they sprint right past that, that goal and they keep going, get going. How do you guys create an environment where you can come in and you can be like, you can say, yeah, this is my 10th book. Like I've got a million books and I'm really proud of that. I'm really excited. Or we just threw this big event and Garth Brooks was there and it was amazing. And Nashville was amazing. Like, do you guys have space for you to celebrate each other? Yeah, I think we do. We could probably do more of that. Mm -hmm. But but yes, we do. In fact, I, I just submitted the, the first draft on my next book to the publisher. And 
somebody in the group asked me, hey, didn't you submit your book last yeah. month? Like, yeah. Yeah, it's oh, a big deal, dude. Books are hard. Yeah, I know. So we, we try to help each other with that kind of stuff. Okay, okay. I, I was curious about that. I think one of the things I, I liked about this book is that you can, you can tell how many decades you've put into the concepts that are, that are in here. This isn't, it's a new book, but it's not new information to you and in that you've been living it, you've been studying it. And one of the things that surprised me recently at the event I spoke at, I talked to one of your team members and I had quoted Barbara Edmondson from the Harvard Business School about psychological safety. I had a slide about, and he said backstage, oh, it's so funny. You mentioned that we just were up at Harvard talking with her about that. So you've had this front row seat that few people on the planet have because Chick-fil-A, when people go, I really like how well it's run. Yeah, that's not accidental. Or like, I really like how the drive-through line works. Yeah, not accidental. I really like that there's kind teenagers in there. It's not that you guys know where to find them and other places are looking in the wrong place. Like, it's not accidental. So what are some other experiences that you've had in your leadership journey where you go, man, we got to sit down with Jim Collins and we asked these five questions or we got to do this. You know, what's part of, you know, the pantheon of your, your leadership experiences that you would say, oh man, I got to learn this and I love passing it on to, to listeners of a, of a podcast. Well, I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is I am so thankful that I'm part of an organization that understands the importance of lifelong learning. That was impressed upon me over 40 years ago that your capacity to grow determines your capacity to lead. And we've got a whole building full of people that understand growth is not extracurricular. Development is not something you do if you have time. Uh, At the heart of our leadership model is this idea of reinventing continuously. And we say it starts with reinventing yourself. And so I mentioned earlier, we required development plans years before we required business plans from our own consultants on staff. Mm -hmm. And so I think first and foremost, I've been part of a culture that really understands, as we talk about in the book, the the choice to fuel curiosity. Curiosity, it's the fountain of youth for leaders. Oh, that's great. I love that. It's the fountain of youth for leaders. And so because of that, to answer your question specifically, we've, we've had a chance to benchmark some of the great organizations in the world. We continue that practice. I started benchmarking folks probably 35 years ago. And you, you name somebody who's really good, whether it's mm-hmm. Microsoft or FedEx or Porsche or, you know, or Southwest Airlines or Starbucks. And, and we've been there. Disney, we, we go see them and mm-hmm. say, can we come learn from you? And so we have made dozens scores of those kind of trips. And then during COVID, we made dozens of Zoom benchmarking trips where we're still trying to learn from other people. You mentioned thought leaders. Uh, We have had the chance to spend time with Jim Collins and Marcus Buckingham and John Maxwell and Ken Blanchard Mm -hmm. and, you know, just Liz Wiseman this year, uh, yourself coming to Mm -hmm. share with us what you've learned. We, We don't assume the best practices exist within our organization. We assume there's someone doing it better that we can learn from, and we want to to transfer that. We want to translate that into our culture. And so that's what we've done with all the books that we've created over the last 20 plus years. 
It's what can we learn and how can we translate that so that it's approachable and it's applicable. How do you make that a focus? Because I think whether you're a leader inside a company, it's one thing for a company to make it a focus, but how do you as an individual, because say I'm a busy mom, I'm a busy, I'm a you know, busy dad, I'm I'm a busy single adult, whatever. And I know whether it's reading, I know whether it's being in a group, I know whether it's having a business coach or a performance coach, whatever. I know that's valuable, but I think it's still extracurricular. Because I think there's people that want to grow a part of their life, but think it's something I'll get to someday, or it's not as important as blank. How do you carve out that as a priority and set aside time for that? Well, I think it goes back to what is your dream? What is your goal? What is your aspiration? And the leaders that make the biggest impact in the world are the leaders that say, I'm willing to invest in myself so that I'll be ready. You know, I I talk to young people. I mentioned earlier that, that phrase that your capacity to grow determines your capacity to lead. And I had a young person say to me one day, so you're telling me if I grow, I'll get promoted. I said, absolutely not. They said, well, it sounds like that's what you said. I said, no, 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 no. We control our readiness. We don't control our opportunity. Oh, come on. I feel like you're speaking in like amazing tweets. That's fantastic. Are you ready? Think about it in a sporting context. When the coach has to decide who to put in the game, he or she is going to pick folks that they think know the plays and are ready to run the plays. And so, you know, for me personally, it's, it's a stewardship issue tied to the impact I want to make in the world. When, when it really hit me, again, this was over 40 years ago, when my supervisor helped me understand that if you want to have more influence, if you want to have more impact, if you want to have more opportunity, that choice is yours. And it hinges on your ability to grow. And I went, huh, so that's how the world works. Yeah. And I made a choice. Now, my parents wish I'd have made that choice years before because I was an awful student. What age were you when you made that choice? 19. 19. Okay. That's still pretty early. I made it at 34. I was the 16th corporate employee here. I might have been 20 at that point, but 19, 20. Yeah, I was was just a kid, but I went, oh, that's how the world works. And so yeah. I would rather listen to the radio than a podcast or an audiobook in the car. Yeah. You're saying now you listen to the podcast, now you listen to the audiobook. For 40 years. Because yeah. it's like, that's not what I want to do. Yeah. Right? But I, I want what's on the other side. You know the value. You know that you're doing the ROI. That's it's an like ROI. They don't want to go to the gym, but they they want the level of fitness. Well, how bad do you want the level of fitness? Depending on how bad you want it, it's whether you're going to go to the gym or not. And I'm not judging. I'm just saying you asked me about motivation. It's like, how big an impact do you want to have in the world? And I think it hinges fundamentally and primarily on on your capacity to grow. Now, it also is predicated on the topic of this book. If you can't get out of the quicksand, you're hooked, right? But by the way, growth is one of the ways you get out of the quicksand. Exactly. I, I love that. So, I'm curious, what are some other choices that you make around that? You mentioned one specific. Okay, I'm in the car. I'm listening to an audiobook. I'm listening to a podcast. For me, I like to do what I call steal time. Like when I'm on a plane, when I get on the plane, there's usually 17 minutes. If I'm deliberate, I can read a book for 17 minutes while they load versus 17 minutes of me flipping through Instagram, like which gave me nothing. 
obviously there's I watch movies on the plane. I'm not a robot. I'm not saying like I'm constantly multitasking tasking high performance. But what are other choices you make that you go, okay, this is a choice I make for the long-term benefit? Wow. Um, great question. So we mentioned the group. I mean, somebody challenged yeah. I was with Kerry Newhoff this week on his oh, fun. And he was going, you meet twice a month? Like for three hours a night? That's expensive time. That's expensive time. And there's prep time. And he went, yeah. why would you do that? So it's a similar line of questioning. But I would say that's an investment in my leadership mm-hmm. and, and the influence I want to have in the world. Very little TV. Just, mm-hmm. d- just don't, don't do that. I, I want to use that time for, for other things. Uh, even the whole airplane thing is interesting. And I tell people that this idea was impressed upon me by an administrative assistant I had 30 years ago. Uh, so I'm about to go get on a flight and she looked at me and she says, what are you going to do on the plane? And I remember thinking, what do you mean what am I going to do on the plane? And she said, well, here's a folder. This is what you need to do on the plane. And it yeah. was like, yeah, yeah, I, I do need to do stuff on the plane. And so I, I'm going to work for 17 minutes while people board, but I'm going to work for the flight generally. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, my rule is I work all the way there to an event because I'm amped. I'm high energy. You talk about energy in your book on the way back, especially if it's been a long event, I have no good brain power. So like, that's where I'm like, okay, I'm cool with, if I watch a terrible Nicolas Cage movie about a truffle hunting pig, that's fine. That's fine. Let's go. Um, But my assistant will book stuff on those hours. So it'll say Southwest this time. And then I'll see a chunk. Um, I would also say, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. Writing books is one of those decisions. You don't technically, as part of your job, have to write 10 books. Like Chick-fil-A didn't tell you, it would really mean a lot to us if you had books that were published in 25 languages. That's in addition to an already full life. So I think that's another one that you're not giving yourself enough credit for. Well, and I appreciate that. And that was completely true for, I guess, the first seven books. Oh, but now they're like, let's go. They're like, let's do it. Here's what happened. Uh, they asked me to do those on nights and weekends. And I yeah. pretty much did. And then they said, hey, we want to book every year. And I said, well, there's, thank you. That that encourages me, but there's a fundamental problem. And they said, what's that? And I said, it takes me three to five years to do one. Yeah. And they said, well, you better get started. And so that's why I keep multiple books going simultaneously. I said, the other problem is, if we ramp this up because they also want field guides and quick start guides and other resources, I said, ah, we may have to think about that because I'm not sure I've got enough vacation time and I don't want my family to pay for this. And so now part of my role is actually right, which has been refreshing. Uh, But for the first six or seven books, it was a lot of nice. That's amazing. I think you just described a, a job a lot of people would love to have that, you know, that idea of, part of your job is creating great books. And and that gets back to that, you know, the readiness and the opportunity. Because um, when you were 19, that field manager or whatever didn't say, hey, and if you play your cards right, in like 24 years from now, you'll be able to write books as part of your job. Like your head couldn't have even understood that. Um, right. I, I love that. I, I love that. I do want to talk a little about, you know, why do you think some people live up to their potential and why do some not? Like, why do some people you would go, wow, they got out of the quicksand, they tapped into the gifts they had, they're living a full life and other people, they, they spend so much time in the quicksand, they get their mail there. Like they, they just, they're, they're there, you know, it's their whole world. 
What's the difference between somebody who taps into their full potential and somebody who misses it? Well, I want to be real careful not to give a simplistic response because a lot of people are dealing with a lot of stuff. Sure. And so I want to honor that and, and I want to respect that. And, and I made a reference to this in the book, even though I talk about choices as our superpower, mm-hmm. that's not true around the world. No, no. We live in the 1% of 1% of 1%. I've been in the slums of Nairobi and other places mm-hmm. where choices are not their superpower, right? They, mm-hmm. Their worldview is, is encumbered by other circumstances and priorities like finding food for today. So yeah, shelter. I want to, yeah, I want to be real careful, but I do think people generally, leaders specifically, undervalue their own agency. So their own ability to do the things. Yeah, yeah. And then we talk a little bit about this in the book, about what do you believe about your ability to impact outcomes? The psychologists call it locus of control. Is it internal or external? it's external, you believe stuff happens to you and other people control your opportunities and other people control your influence. And to some extent, there's a little truth there. I already said, you don't control all your opportunities. Sure. But, but you have, we as leaders have so much agency. And, and for somebody who's just living in the quicksand, as you said, so much they're getting their mail there. I worry about those folks because it's exhausting. And it's not sustainable. And what what ultimately happens to many of those leaders is they die. Now, they may not physically die, but their hopes, their dreams, their goals, their aspirations, they're just snuffed out. You can't accomplish all that you were meant to accomplish in the quicksand. And so I think it comes back to, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to get out of this. And the, so that's the taking the agency, that the, the vision. Agency. And, and the choices help. Now, there may be circumstances where your exit plan from the quicksand, it may or may not be in your current job or your current role. Well, there's no shame in that. But I would say you'll have more influence and more opportunity and more impact if you're out of the quicksand, even if you're in a different role. A hundred percent. You can accomplish. I think the way you said it was you can accomplish a lot more on dry land than you can expending energy inside quicksand. I I love the book. It's been super encouraging to me. I'm so glad we got to ask a few questions and talk about this. I want to do three quick um, Chick-fil-A rapid fire questions since I have you on, on the line, so to speak. Um, number one, what's the best sauce? Best sauce. If you have to say Chick-fil-A sauce because you work at, you're in the corporate headquarters right now, I get it. It's kind of like when somebody says, what's the best book ever on an island? You have to say the Bible. Like, but okay, let's eliminate Chick-fil-A sauce so you don't get fired. Second best sauce. Oh, yeah. You guys have like 40 sauces now. What's the second best? You probably have like seven coming out tomorrow. We have a lot of sauces. And we I do. like the Chick-fil-A sauce. I'm sorry. You're old school. You're old school. So you <laughs> never are like, you know oh, I'm going to try the herb ranch or anything? You know why I'm old school? Because I'm old. That's <laughs> funny. You're just school. For you, it's just school. That's why. Okay, I'm going to give you that one. Second... Do you have a favorite thing that's on like a secret menu? Like, is there some sort of thing where you're like, oh, we do a rodeo chicken. You got to ask for it. You got to wink when you do it. Is there anything like that that we're, that we're missing out on? There's no nope. like lemonade chicken I don't know about? Nope. It's all on the okay. menu. Okay. Cross that one out. Third right. question. <laughs> I'll yeah. try to do better on this one. I know. Third question. How many 
nuggets. Like when I'm at a, say I'm at some party and somebody's got a Chick-fil-A tray of, of nuggets, how many equal a sandwich? And I hope your answer is 40 because that's how I eat them. Yeah. Like a scoop of 40. How many equal a sandwich? Don't tell me it's like four. That'd be so depressing. No, 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 no. Oh, goodness. Um, you think it's like nine? I think it's as many as you would like. Oh, come on, dude. That's such a that's such a good answer, as many as you would like. Because I really like, if I went to a party and they had multiple sandwiches, I wouldn't be like, give me four. But I get that scoop that's and right. nobody's monitoring it and that's like right. nobody's judging. Oh, man. Oh, so as all many, you want, we'll make more. Yeah, as many as I would like. That is so funny. Okay, Mark, two last questions. First one, what's on your Mount Rushmore of leadership books? Um, so like if you said, hey, these are the four books you got to read, minus yours, or, or another way to answer the question, because sometimes people, it's hard to rattle off four right away, is like, what's a book you've given away more than any other book other than your own? Okay. Uh, the Effective Executive by okay. Peter Drucker. You mentioned thought, that in your book. Yeah, that, that yeah, was a real life changer. Not read it. They should put mine down and go buy that one. Yep. I think Drucker is the source of the Nile. Okay. He's he's like the head of the Nile. Greatest management and leadership thinker of the last 2,000 years, Peter Drucker. All okay. right. Uh, that'd be the first one. I have given a lot of people Brendan Bruchard's book, High Performance Habits. Oh, Okay. Now, it's not a leadership book, but it's for humans. And so that includes leaders, even if you've had a bad leader. Trust me, they're humans too. Um, I've given a lot of people that book. Another one that I have given a lot of copies of, Necessary Endings. Oh, yeah. By Henry Cloud. I think 100 years from now, people will still be reading that book. Oh, that's that's quite a compliment. It's, it's fantastic. It's really, really, really good. All right, you want one more. Um, in the last five years, I have given a lot of people a book called Insanely Simple. Oh, I've never heard of that one. It, it's about Steve Jobs. The premise is that Apple's secret weapon was not Steve, which is blasphemy to many. It was Steve's focus on simplicity, which encourages me because I'm not Steve and I don't want to be Steve, but I have spent my career in the pursuit of simple, not simplistic. Mm. And and they say that Steve brought that passion for uh, the simple and simplicity to Apple. I love that. Those are great answers. I I don't think anyone, because I ask this question usually in most episodes that I remember to ask it. Um, and I don't think any of those books have been, uh, referenced before. So that's super encouraging. Cause I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of readers, um, that listen to this podcast. And so that'll be really fun. Last question. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, MarkMillerLeadership.com. MarkMillerLeadership.com. And my cell number is 678-612-8441. Bob Goff was on the podcast and he said he gets a hundred calls a day. I, I get quite a few, but a lot of them are text, which yep. helps me process. Sure. And people have questions. And I'd love to serve people if I can. We'll say it again one more time. 678-612-8441. 8441. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. 
I hope to see you backstage at another event. Um, I just had a blast. I think I've got one coming up with y'all this summer with uh, with an operator, I want to say in Kansas City, but I'm going to have to double check that. So awesome, Mark. Have a great rest of your day. I'm going to keep rep- recommending Smart Leadership for Simple Choices to Scale Your Impact. Mark Miller, thanks for joining me. Thanks, John. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to my interview with Mark Miller today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. The reviews you write are super encouraging. I've said this a million times. Podcasts are weird because you don't get a ton of feedback. It's it's just kind of vacuum. Like when I'm on stage, I can tell, oh, that worked. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I need to tweak this. I need to change this. Same with Twitter. Same with Instagram. Like people can leave comments easily. It's some give and take, some back and forth, if you will. It feels like the only way you really get that with podcasts is via reviews. So the, the reviews you leave are very important and I'm so grateful you do it. So thank you for taking the time to write those. Please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days and please write a review. See you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.